I'm Adam Weil, creative director of White Rabbit Group. I welcome you to the Pixel Perfect podcast, where we share knowledge, experiences, and motivations from creatives and entrepreneurs. So today we are joined by David Guthmiller. Uh, she's the creative chief creative officer and founder of several companies, including her creative agency, Noise 13 and Invisible Ventures. Dave has been featured in Forbes and is making waves as a creative leader in the growing cannabis industry. Uh, White Rabbit has actually had the pleasure of working with Dave in Noise 13 uh, for the past five years, and we're excited to have her on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. My first question for you is, what are you working on? I feel like you always have a ton of irons in the fire. Where's most of your energy going at the moment? Wow. Um, right now in studio, um, our two biggest clients are Twilio and Ernan. Um, we sort of have ongoing retainers with those two, um, lovely companies and, um, Ernan, I can't really talk about what we're doing with them, uh, mm -hmm. until it actually launches, but they're a really great sort of FinTech, uh, company. Um, and then with Twilio, we work with their, um, it's an internal group, kind of like their lab or, you know, um, strategy section of their company called um, the TEC. Mm. Um, and we just finished doing a new brand. And then we also just finished um, the um, big event, their big conference that they do every year. Mm. So all of that event signage. So now we're going back and updating the brand guide and doing all those great things. Um so those are probably the two biggest projects we're working on other than our own holiday stuff. Um, yeah. And then we're really excited that we're going to be re-engaging with um, another client that we worked with back in 2016 and 17, mm. um, who has just gotten some funding um, called Verb House, which is in sort of mm. the um, lease to own uh, market of housing. Mm. Um and we've been consulting with them this whole time um, as they've been going through sort of a reorg of how they're structured and who they're targeting, but um, mm. we're going to be their agency of record for the next couple of years. So wow. those are, those That's are great. probably the big exciting ones. Yeah. Yeah. So th that company you were just mentioning, what was the name of that? Superb? Verb, Verb House. Uh, Verb House. V-E-R-B House. And so they've been working for the past few years with you, your, your team, and they've recently got funding on that? Um, back in 2016, we did, um, 16, 17, we did their brand strategy and identity, um, a really basic um, kind of informational website, as well as some pitch decks um, and a little bit of user experience on a product uh, design. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been sort of testing out the model looking at working directly with consumers or home buyers um, versus going in with organizations, i.e. the UC system and working with teachers who need housing or going in with um, like the firefighters union or those things and like really being supportive of um, people being able to buy homes in the areas in which they live, who are those mm. people who are serving community. Um, so um they've sort of just been doing a lot of testing um, mm -hmm. and now they've got their major funding, which will go through um, hopefully in the next week and we'll yeah. sort of re-engage with them. Um, look at, you know, sort of an update to their consumer space or their um, competitive space. 
Mm. do a quick update to their brand system and then uh, we'll move forward into a full website design and product Mm -hmm. interface and marketing materials and all the good things so yeah um, it's actually really interesting to see a brand that was done so long ago so like I think we finished in 2017 that they've been using this entire time. Mm. That's um, that memorable. And we're just going to build upon that rather than we're not going to throw away what we've done. We're just going to build upon it for the yeah. external market at this point. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Oh, I'm excited to look more into it after uh, this call. I'm sure the design is, yeah. I, you know, we always are shooting for something more timeless, you know, something that's going to last. So it sounds like that was the case on that one. Yeah. And I, this is an interesting case because it's been very internal, right? They've been dealing with testing and pitching it to different markets and really talking to investors and a lot of other much more internal work. So Mm -hmm. um, next year will be the first time that the brand is really hitting the public. Mm -hmm. Um, So it'll be a really, it'll be a great test to see how well it holds up. And um, yeah, but it's, it's really fun. It's a female founder and, you know, the brand is very centered around, um, well, in her words, love, mm-hmm. which is really interesting for the housing market and something that's in mm-hmm. finance. It's a very different way to look at the company. And her background is in really keeping people in their homes, which has been her job for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's taking that knowledge and applying it to actually purchasing a home. So, mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it sounds like you have some really good stuff coming up. So that's yes. exciting. Very cool. Um, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you, cause you're coming up on 23 years in business and, you know, as the founder, you've probably worn every hat All there is within your company. <laughs> What's something you can share with maybe other founders, um, out there that you think would put them on the fast track for success, given your just wide range of experience. Yeah. I mean, my background is in design, not in business. Um, even though I did work in a business capacity, my parents' company for a long time. Um, I'd say if you're starting out now, it's really decide what you love doing the most in your company. Mm. Um, Just because you can do everything doesn't mean you should do everything. Mm. Um, For me, one of the first things that I did was separate finance from creative. Mm. Um, because if you are the person doing the creative work, it's very hard to also be the person asking for money when people mm. are not paying the bill. So, um, you know, if operations isn't your thing, um, you know, hiring out for the accounting and the bookkeeping and the, you know, somebody to go after the funds mm-hmm. um, so that so that those conversations when they're having them with you can be around the fun and the creative and whatever, right. um, or vice versa. Right. So um, yeah. decide what your, what your joy is and hold that tight. Right. Because what you're the best, what you like doing the most is usually what you're the best at Yeah. Um, and hire for the rest. I would say um, the other is just ask for help. I think mm-hmm. um, as a very young female to be, blunt about it when I started my business um, I felt like I needed to prove myself and do a lot of things by myself and 
not mm-hmm. ask for help and not ask for funding and not ask for, you know, as much advice as I should have. Um, mm-hmm. But there is always somebody out there willing to help and support. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, myself, I've been a mentor a lot. I had the pleasure of meeting mentors along the way who are still mentors to me. Um, but yeah, ask for help. Yeah. Um, and I'd say the third thing is, uh, which is something that I did, which I still continue to do is hire for your company values and hire for your goals. So hire the person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, they need to have the skills for the job, but you can always build more skills if mm. you have the right person. So mm. find the right person, put them in the right seat. Um, yeah. You know, if they're the right person, they're it's worth it to continue to educate and train mm-hmm. that person um, rather than hiring just for skills because a contrast in work style or personality style or a values misalignment um, mm-hmm. is not worth um, the skill set, to be honest. And especially in a small growing company, the bigger you get, the more that can is usually laxed, unfortunately. Um, But the more that you can decide what your values are and your goals are as a company and a personality style of how you want to be represented as a company to your clients and hire Mm -hmm. for that in addition to skills, Mm -hmm. um, everyone will be happier. Yeah, I like that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's also, you know, what you were saying about wanting to sort of prove yourself I think that's a trap that a lot of creatives and business owners get into where they, they want to provide as much value as possible and just take on, take on and take on and say, yes. Um, that was Greg calling me there, of course. Um, but they, you know, they want to take on so much and prove that they can do so much and provide so much value. And so I think that is a, a little bit of a trap there and maybe it's ego driven, right? Cause we, you know, we're so, proud when we can do something that does produce results, but, uh, you're right. You got to take a step back and, and put people in, uh, other positions to, to take that on. Yeah. And I think that has to go with both you as a person. I think, you know, for a founder, it's important that you understand how all the pieces of your business work. Um, Mm -hmm. even if you can't fully do them all, you still need to understand how they work so that Mm -hmm. you can understand if somebody's doing a good job in that role. Right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned about hiring for values. How do you foster a a culture, you know, given right now, you you said you just had an in-person meeting. Um, We're still a little bit in the limbo uh, of COVID-19. You know, how did the pandemic affect Noise 13 in terms of, you know, your company culture, um, how you hired and uh, how are you kind of moving forward as, as the dust settles here? Yeah, I mean, we were lucky enough that um, in when COVID hit, um, our whole entire team, like we had all been in person together, right? We all worked in the office at that time. We were all um, in person in the office every day. And we had a lot of culture structure in place, whether it be like how we collaborate or how we check in. Um, you know, all of that great stuff that kind of keeps the office running. Um, And so when we went home, we were able to transition a lot of those activities virtually, right? So whether it's, you know, 
every other day stand-ups or, you know, pin-up reviews where everybody gets to see what's happening in the office or team lunches or whatever it is. We sort of transitioned everything virtually. Mm. Um, and we were, and luckily, um, really busy in 2020 and 2021. Mm. Um, and so the whole first year of COVID, our entire team was able to stay. So we actually did not hire anybody new until 2021. Mm. Um, we had a little bit of transition of, you know, somebody wanting a sabbatical and somebody else going back to advertising. Mm. Um, and so in 2021 was the first time we hired people remote. Um, and, um, but because we had a year of transitioning our culture um, touch points to virtual, we mm. were really lucky in the fact that we were able to loop those people in. Um, mm. And when things slightly opened up in 2021, we actually still made a point of meeting those people in person. Mm. Um, so we were, you know, really lucky in that way. Um, yeah. And um, I think we've started this year, we started coming back into the office um, a couple days a week, but we still now, you know, for the last two years, we've had remote employees, which we've never had before. Mm. So um, there is that hybrid space of gathering together and having meetings in person, but also then including somebody who's remote and how do those, you know, things work and yeah. um, making sure that people are connected, which is why, you know, we flew everybody in for a full team offsite um, for a week so that we could work together. Everyone could meet in person mm -hmm. Um, and we could have that FaceTime, um, which was amazing. And so yeah. we'll really budget. We're going to try to budget for that at least twice a year, if not four times a year to mm. like bring those people in to work together. Um, there's something about gathering in person when you're doing a creative project. Um, I mean, I think culture in general, um, <laughs> that you have more empathy for how somebody's doing what they're going through the challenges um when you're um seeing them as a real person yeah. um the virtual is not quite the same i think um i don't think that you know there's a lot of jobs where you don't need to be with others but um creative work is inherently very collaborative and um it is just so much easier for those random sparks of inspiration to happen when you're kind of hearing the buzz of what's happening around you, you're being influenced or gaining insight from just somebody who happens to walk by and see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we're still in that mode of trying to find ways for that to happen in a remote environment, those mm -hmm. kind of sparks of creativity. Yeah. Um, so. And do you, you know, when you're hiring and, and, um, and onboarding folks, I mean, is there, is there something that you look for or that you try to, you know, maybe during the interview process or when you're evaluating someone's portfolio, um, and even during that onboarding process that you really try to focus on in terms of the culture to, to make sure that person kind of fits into the fold and is, is going to work with the culture that you want to have there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, our value set is um, both internal and external. So 
Um, you know, we're big on brand strategy and values are part of that brand strategy, but, um, you know, collaboration is huge for us. Like how do people collaborate? How do they, um, one, do they collaborate? A lot of creatives don't. <laughs> um, there's a little bit more ego in some people, um, which doesn't work with our culture, right? Like it, it is a more collaborative environment, and but it also means collaborating with a client and um, being a good listener. It yeah. means um, being respectful and having empathy for the client, the person we're designing for, for your colleagues, you know, all that great stuff. Um, I think design also is really important to um, be constantly looking for new inspiration and new um, creative resources, right? Mm -hmm. So you need some, you need head and heart is what we say, where you need to be able to take data and facts from a client and insight about their industry, but you also need to be able to step outside of that industry and find inspiration other places. Mm -hmm. um, but that also kind of goes to empathy, right? You can have the facts, but you also need empathy around others. Um, so, and, and we have four or five values. And, you know, so we, we do ask questions in the interview process around those. Um, we also, it's part of our review process. Um, it's part of, you know, the culture things we have in place. It's part of our processes that we have in place. Nice. So, um, but we do interview for those things and we, check in based on those things. Mm -hmm. So it's not just based on performance. It's also based on company values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you mentioned about <clears throat> being a good listener and I imagine that's really important to, so you can take in as much data so that your, your design is properly informed. Um, how, how do you navigate those situations where design, it can sometimes be so subjective. And sometimes there's just clearly differences of opinions, either either internally with team members as you're trying to work on something and refine it and iterate, or even with a client. And I'm curious to hear if there's any um, insight you have there on how to navigate that. Cause it can be a little bit challenging, especially when it's a little bit more subjective. Yeah, design is very subjective. It's also very personal, um, which is why strategy is so important. So, we like to start every process with some form of strategy. Um, when we're really lucky, we can do a full brand strategy. Um, sometimes when a brand is already in place or an identity system and you know uh, a brand platform is in place and we're just doing a website, for example, or we're just doing packaging, um, we still want to and need to know what those are, right? We're not gonna design um, without that company level brand strategy in place mm. um, because that to me is the tiebreaker, right? So, um, well, there's two, right? So if, if nobody agrees, um, <laughs> which very rarely happens because we're sort of getting agreement along the way, mm. um, we go back and look at the strategy uh, for the company. And then we also look at the needs of the end viewer, user, person, company that is interacting with this thing because mm -hmm. those two things are more important than one person's opinion about a color or a function um but you know at the end of the day if 
the CEO of a company is like, it absolutely has to be this way. And I don't care about the strategy and I don't care about the end consumer. I mean, we definitely try to guide based on those things because mm. um, it just makes the most sense. But yeah. you know, in 23 years, there's definitely been one or two times where somebody's just like, nope, I just want it to be this way. And you're like, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's your company. It's your money. This is our opinion. This is our advice. This is what the data is telling us. This is what your consumer is telling us. If you want this, we'll totally do it. You know, here you go. Yeah. You're paying the bill and um, they are the boss of their company. Um, but because we have these other checks and balances in, in place and we are not just looking at data, we're looking at, you know, this broader sense of like, where is this design going to live? Mm. Um, that tends to help. Um, yeah. You know, and in the terms of say a website, you know, one of the things that we, um, we need to do more of, um, but a lot of times what we want to achieve is not actually achievable in the code and in the, you know, and mm-hmm. either because of budget or timeline or because of just nobody's figured that out yet. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, that goes back to being a good listener of your partners of, um, you know, bringing in partners that you trust on every level so that they can help advise during that process. Right. And we look at ourselves as a partner that our clients should trust. Right. Mm -hmm. So we sort of set things up in that way that like, this is a collaborative process. We're here to make you win. Also we're your partner, Um, Um, but we have to act like that as well. And we like to hire teams that are acting like that as well, you know, Mm -hmm. on the other end. Right. And, and does that look like a, uh, kind of like an onboarding conversation, like where you sort of lay out the expectations and, and you sort of give a a little speech, I imagine something like that at the very beginning, just to set the the tone and expectations there for clients, hundred percent for, for vendors, you know, we interview for that too. Right. So like, how do those, you know, companies work, but definitely at the client level, it's like in that proposal process, you know, it's, you know, what we do is not a single transaction. Somebody's not just buying something from us and off they go, um, which really it shouldn't be that for any company, but you know, our interactions with clients tend to last six months to six years, you know? So it's your, that, that proposal RFP scope of work, you know, that's sort of like the first couple dates, right? Like, are we going to get along? Do we respect each other? Um, are we open to collaborating? Um, it's they're interviewing us as much as we're interviewing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. You know, you're, you're in an industry, there's a lot of creative agencies out there. It's, there's a lot of competition. Um, uh, it can get, super easy to be overlooked. Um, and a lot of agencies use similar keywords, lingo. Um, how does noise 13 differentiate themselves to cut through the noise pun intended? Yeah. Um, you know, we do, I'd say the, the one thing that we do the most is talk about strategy first. Um, you know, yes, we are a design agency and you know, we focus on brand and design. Um, brand is not marketing, even though technically we do marketing at the end, but everything we do starts with strategy. That's probably like 
the biggest thing I could say is our, um, our sort of stance, but, mm-hmm. you know, I know that especially now, especially the last, you know, four or five years, um, you know, agencies are getting gobbled up and, you mm-hmm. know, going into larger groups, which have more money and there's more of us out there and people are going independent and there's a lot more competition every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and every business strategist, every business coach I've ever had has told us how much it would help our marketing if we would specialize in something. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be a process or an industry or a set of deliverables um, being like the only place that does X. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will admit fully that noise has always been a lot of things for a lot of people. I joked at our offsite that we are like the room of requirement Um, and Harry Potter. (laughs) We are what you need when you need it. And, um, and as much as I, as a, person and very giving and supportive of my team and um the the clients that we work with and i you know you like you mentioned like you want to do it all you want to help everybody with everything um as i look to the future of noise like we do need to narrow it down um Mm -hmm. we don't do marketing i've been in business 23 years and we do not market ourselves um which is awful and um, also you know, amazing because we rely a lot. Yeah, yeah. We rely a, a lot on referrals and word of mouth and repeat customers. Um, but that is very much waiting for the phone to ring versus ringing the phone. Mm-hmm. And um, we've never had a sales department. Um, you know, we've maybe had a person here or there who they were sort of helping with outreach, but um mm-hmm. We've never had a formal sales team or a formal marketing team to market us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that in order for us to grow and really reach the larger, more impactful clients that we want, um, that is my focus for next year is to mm-hmm. um, figure out like what is what are those one or two things that we really want to be known for so Mm. that I can message around those things in order to externally market us because Mm -hmm. we don't do it. Right. So luckily our clients say lots of nice things about us and they market for us, but um, it's time for us to market for ourselves. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm excited to see what that, that next chapter looks like. That's, that's great. Awesome. Yeah. I, you know, going back to clients and kind of finding the right clients and, and making sure you're on the same page. Uh, I was curious, do you have a do- a bullet dodged experience that you can share related to a potential project that you maybe almost took on, but ultimately turned down? And if there's any red flags our, our listeners can look for. Mm. I mean, usually where we um, I don't know that it's dodging a bullet, but if we feel that a client is not the right fit for us, either personality wise or, um, you know, budget wise, um, you know, a quick estimate will cut them out of the running right away. Right. Mm. So that's an easy way to dodge bullet. But, um, and if there is a, a personality 
mismatch, you know, a lot of times we'll just refer them out. We won't even write a proposal, but I would say some of the biggest dodging bullets were when we exited a relationship at the right time Mm. Um, where, um, and it happened twice where we had really large retainers um, and we had been with the said, you know, company for a couple years and we could just feel that there was an internal shift happening at the company, whether that be culture or new leadership coming on or um, directional shift in the work that they were doing. Mm. And it was like, um, or in one instance where they just, you could tell that they weren't valuing brand. They were valuing volume. Mm. Um, and it was like, okay, great. We're coming up to end of our retainer and we're getting busy. So I think we've given you all the tools that you need and we're just, we think it's a good business decision for you to go ahead and do this in house. Mm. And, um, we've always left those relationships in good standing where we've like trained the internal teams. We've given them all the tools, but we've gently exited at the end of our contract and not signed another one. Nice. Um, and in both instances, you know, shit hit the fan, like within months after us leaving. And it's like, whew, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah. really glad that we um, took a step aside. But I think when you are a close partner with somebody, you can feel when there's internal tension, especially in larger organizations. Um, and you can feel when your stakeholders are stressed or, that there's um, motion happening that you're not being involved in. And Mm. um, as a creative partner, if you know that that relationship is on the edge, sometimes it is just better to cut it out. Yeah. Yeah. And financially it was really, really hard because those were huge Mm. contracts and we probably could have signed another one, but their internal tension was causing tension in my office and I'm not willing to, um, we don't, we're not employees of that company. We're contractors yeah. and it, it's not worth me putting my team um, in danger just for their well-being mm. <laughs> um, when it's something that I can control by stopping the relationship. So yeah. it's, um, you know, people change, businesses change. So um, yeah. just being really aware of that and realizing that sometimes it's better to go ahead and cut the ties. Yeah. Yeah. That's good that you're able to be in that position of choice too. I think some businesses, they get too dependent on certain relationships that maybe become just not a good fit over time or even toxic. Um, yeah. When you have a really large retainer, that's more than 50% of your income. It's dangerous. And we've done that more than once. Um, which is again, you know, where I was making the choice to cut it off before something happened, but also, Mm. you know, it, you have to realize that it's, you know, going to make a financial impact. Um, but sometimes it's worth it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it can't always be about the money. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I want to talk about invisible talks. Um, you, yes. have, you have so much going on. Um, invisible talks for those that don't know, it's an annual design conference and, and series of events with a mission to build community around the creative practice. So as a creative, as a co-founder alongside Ariana Orland, um, what was the original vision for Invisible Talks? And is there a larger plan for the future uh, of the event? Yeah. So 
Ariana and I have known each other for a really long time. And she, had, uh, when we first started talking about it, she was on the board of AIGA um, and uh, AIGA SF and had brought me in to um, help with the annual um, AIGA events or design week. Mm. Um, so I do have a lot of a book planning experience through a nonprofit that I used to be a part of, which is slow food. And so, um, I came on to help her with like the launch party and we got through that process and, you know, we've both been involved in AIGA for since we were in college. Right. And we realized that we were sort of, there was something that we wanted from AIGA that we were missing as mm. older creatives and more and higher professionals. Um, and, which was really that cross media connection of like, you know, designers don't just, or shouldn't just work with other designers, right? Or an engineer shouldn't just work with other engineers. It's like where you learn something new and find a new way of doing or find new inspiration is when you're taking and talking to people who are not exactly like you and you mm -hmm. have other experience. And so we wanted to, we just sort of were brainstorming like, well, what if we just, you know, did our own conference? Like, we know how to do this. Like, we know all the right people. Like, we could curate, like, amazing conversation. And we we wanted to hear, we would we basically built something that we wanted for ourselves. Mm. Um, we wanted to have the harder conversation around challenges, around the creative process, where people find their inspiration. Um, you know, and if you talk about, the creative process, regardless of the, the medium, whether you're a writer or a researcher or a designer, um, whether you design a chair or typeface, right? Um, all of those things need inspiration. They all have challenges. There's all processes, mm. um, ways of dealing with team members, ways of dealing with a client that are across all of those, right? Mm. So, um, we it was so it was that need of wanting that conversation but then also mm -hmm. realizing that she and I both had been doing other people's events um and being the behind the scenes for a really long time mm -hmm. and we're like well if we are the curators of the speakers and we are the MCs of the event we're forced in front and then we get to call people who we really want to meet to have them come play with us right mm -hmm. so it kind of fed a lot of needs, right? Wanting that community, wanting to sort of be the curator and, you know, the ones kind of bringing people together. Um, so Invisible Talks was sort of born out of a lot of those needs. Mm. Um, and we did the conference for three years in person um, with sort of smaller salon events, you know, through a year. And then in 2020, we did it the first time virtually um, which was great because we got a much more international audience in that way. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, it's a side gig for us. Um, there is, we do not make, it, it does pay for itself, but we do not make any money off of the conference. Um, so it's um, a labor of love more than anything else. And in, um, 2021, Ariana got a new job where she was just very consumed by time and I couldn't do it without her. So we did not do the conference this year. Mm. Um, but layered into that, 
um, conference, um, you know, especially after the first two years, we realized the power of this ridiculously fantastic community that was happening with Invisible Talks. Um, And the fact that there are a lot of creatives who are now founding companies, right? Um, And creatives also are usually not part of the funding mechanism that invests in other companies. Mm. So um, one of our friends, uh, Rick Johansson, was just like, I think these creative people need to support each other even more. And what happens if we started a venture company that these creatives are able to join as a syndicate as small dollar amounts and support and fund these other creatives who are starting businesses. So Invisible Ventures was born a couple years ago to kind of layer into that really rich community support that was happening through the conference. Um, And in this slightly more quiet time of the conference, um, the venture has been building up a little bit more. Mm. Um, and so as we sort of move forward into the future, we will bring back invisible talks in some way. Um, mm. But it is very expensive to produce a conference. So finding those lead sponsors is really important because we're not backed by a big corporation, right? Mm. We're not Adobe doing a conference that has a marketing budget. We're two ladies um and our personal finances (laughs) putting together a conference so um i think the impetus for us to do another big conference would be sort of that um that lead sponsorship Mm. Um, and in the meantime we're continuing to build that community um through this collaboration of investing um and investment education so Mm. um we'll sort of see how that goes in the next year but um but Mm. yeah We don't want to lose it, but we definitely took a little bit of a break because it is a lot of work to do on your nights and weekends. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I'm I'm sure that is a lot of work. Well, that's really exciting. I'm I'm excited to see see it come back and uh, check it out when that time comes. Um, Invisible Ventures, I'd love to uh, dive a little deeper into that. Is there any experiences or or outcomes that you can share at this point that you're that you're particularly proud of? Um, I think the best thing for me on the venture side is that continuing, well, for me, it's, it's new, you know, I am not a giant angel investor um, and that the power of lots of people coming together to support, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really interesting. And that's that sort of syndicate or fund model where um, it's almost like, I want to think about Kickstarter, right? In -hmm. that way of um, because we're investing in products, right? Whether they're physical, most of them are digital. um, If you have 40 creative leaders who are willing to invest in your company, there must be something that you're doing really well on the user experience side or the product design side that is attractive right to this audience Mm. which then um it also means you have this group of people as support right Mm. through advice and insight and everything else and a lot of founders you know aren't starting with a huge design team 
right? They're starting with, especially product design, they're starting with engineers, they're starting with finance. Um, We tend to like um, a more diverse founder team, as well as somebody, anybody who has creative background on the, on the founding team, mm-hmm. um, or at least that one of their first hires is on the creative side. Um, but I think that the insight that as mentors and support system, we can provide something more than just money as Invisible Ventures, um, where a lot of other finance teams, um, they're bringing in a lot more business advice on the finance side and the mm. operations and the, um, the technical, and we're bringing it on brand and mm. product design and um, team culture. So we're sort of bringing in soft power where mm-hmm. other people are bringing in, you know, the hard power. So yeah. it's a good balance. And it's, it also is very, um, it's a nice validation of the power of design to make a product really useful but also if all things are equal if your code is the same if your features and functions are the same you know your messaging your brand your company culture is what's going to help you sort of make mm. a difference so yeah. it's very um yeah we're yeah. the soft power we're the soft yeah. power in finance <laughs> in venture. Like that. the soft yeah. power yeah and you, you see that times where i'm sure you've seen it over the years where clients will come to you as kind of a startup and maybe yeah. they have like a really good core, but it's just so ugly, right? Yep. Or it's just, it, yeah, it's just not appealing. And then you you go in there and you you do your magic, and uh, and it really makes a difference for their for their bottom line, and also yeah. to to maybe attract more uh, venture capital, right? Because yeah. I think they they look for that as well. Yeah, and I think you know when you're just, especially a digital product or you know almost anything, you need to test, right? you should hire a freelancer. You should do it yourself. Like your visual design really, it, you need something to Mm -hmm. open the, to put up the website. But when you're beta testing and, you know, just making sure the spaghetti sticks to the wall, like you shouldn't be spending a hundred thousand dollars on your branding. Like Mm -hmm. it's not the right time to do that. Um, But after you're like, great, this sticks, we're going to go ahead and go after funding and, this needs to be a real thing. That's when that stuff starts to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's still not the right time for you to spend, you know, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on your brand system and new whole new website. But having one internal designer and having a set of advisors that can help Creative Direct, can help give insight, can help you learn how to talk to your designers and like work with other design teams, help you build your, you know your visual design team, um, Mm -hmm. those things matter, right? So sometimes we'll go in with funding. Sometimes we'll go in with like consulting for six months Mm -hmm. um, before they're ready for funding. So we sort of have a couple different ways that we interact with startups depending on where they are in their system. Um, and, And Noise has done that a little bit as well over the years, or I personally have done that as an advisor. Um, or, you know, when we're really lucky and we find somebody that we believe in, sometimes we'll actually take part of our uh, our Noise 13 fees as investment. Right? Mm. So, um, you know, we've maybe only done it four times and sometimes you are really lucky 
and it's mm -hmm. you know uber when they only have one designer and sometimes <laughs> um you know it's a food brand and maybe someday you'll make money off of it and yeah um it, you know it's it's really different we have noise has four very very different investments in that way where we've taken equity um and you know anytime that you do that as a creative partner any kind of partner um is just like any other investing mm. sometimes you're going to make money and sometimes you're not um make sure that your costs are covered before you do that yeah <laughs> Are there any uh, examples that, um, that you can share where it's, it's, it's been kind of uh, an exciting venture and good choice for you to, for you to make or? Oh, Uber. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, that, that was a real example. That was a real example. Yeah. Wow. Um, we, we started working with Uber when they were in 20 cities. So we, the majority of time we worked with them was 20 cities to about 200 something cities mm -hmm. that, that span of growth. And the first um, one of, well, I guess it was the second contract that we did with them. We did one that was just like a quick little three month contract. And then we wrote um, a six month contract and we kind of did six month contracts, you know, for mm -hmm. three years with them. But that second retainer contract that we did, um, they were still tight on budgets. And so we negotiated, you know, I don't know what the percentage was like, whatever a portion of our monthly fee yeah. was in shares instead of in cash. Mm. Um, and you know, yeah, it sounds like we got shares at yeah. whatever, 25 cents, you know, it was, um, it was really right place, right time kind of a thing. Um, other companies like, um, another company we're invested in is world wraps, which is a, um, a, like a fast casual restaurant, um, you know, they're growing, they're doing really well, but you know, will we see a return on that in the next five years? You know, maybe it's been five or six years. Yeah. Um, and then there's other companies like verb house, which is another one that we've, um, taken, taken equity in, mm. um, where, you know, when we stopped, when we kind of stopped what we did our work with them and they went out for funding and they didn't get their funding. Right. And so I kind of stayed on and provided insight and advice here and there over the years. And they're in the middle of going after major funding. So in addition to hiring noise back as their marketing and design agency for the next couple of years, um, we also, you know, have a, a stake in that company is, you know, to do really well. Mm. So, um, you know, I think it, you have to really believe in the founders and yeah. the work that's happening. Um, but, um, well, sometimes not the founder, but the, <laughs> the, the industry that's happening, but I yeah. think that there's, um, you know, some, it's like with any risk, you know, if you're willing to, you know, put a stake in the ground, it's also makes you a really good partner. Right. And when you're yeah. lucky, it also gives you a seat, a little bit more of a seat at the table of make helping to make those decisions. Yeah. Um, I think the entrepreneur in me wants to like run a hundred businesses, but um, <laughs> I, this is that way that I get to kind of advise and support and not have to do the operations on six different companies. Yeah. <laughs>
I like it. Like I said, lots of irons in the fire. Yeah. Um, well, I know we don't have too much time left here. I, I have a couple last questions. Um, is there one question that you maybe wish I'd asked you? And uh, if so, how would you have answered? I can't think of anything else at the moment based on this, but yeah, keep going. Let's see what else you have. Is there any last questions? Yeah, I got one last question, which is, um, you know, this is the Pixel Perfect podcast. You're clearly an entrepreneur. We live in a digital world. What does Pixel Perfect mean to you? In my designer heart, it's like if I give you something and, you know, I want things to be aligned to a grid and I want all the things to be, you know, fonts to be the correct size and I want the colors to be specced correctly for RGB versus CMYK and, you know, just line it all up and my Swiss brain wants everything to be organized. Um, But when you hand things off in a digital world, um, I think there's the reality that things move, right? Um, I mean, they didn't when you first designed websites. My first website was basically a photograph mm-hmm. and you had hot spots where you could click on things, right? There was no moving of right. pixels. Um, but with the way that things work now, um, I think having that intention, right? That this is what we were going for. How is it going to live in this other space? Um, I'm as a business person and as a realist, I know that, you know, it can't be identical every time. It's just not possible. So um, pixel perfect to me is that the intention of what we were going for is done to its best capability. Um, Training my designers to, um, let go a tiny bit of that mm-hmm. pixel perfectness that it is not a piece of paper and um, it is not a, you know, a flat thing. It is in motion. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is where we have to go to where it is the intention mm-hmm. of rather than um, the exactness, because even if something is exact to my design, as I handed off um, to a developer after that website or product is launched, the client still has the control and mm. is still going to edit and add and adjust usually weeks or months after you hand it to them and it's going to change. And, um, and knowing that you've given them the tools and, you know, the information to the best of the ability to maintain the intention of what you are trying to build. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there is pixel perfect as much anymore where if there can be mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as I want to be, and I love the control. Um, yeah. I don't know that it really can be. So. Yeah. I yeah. like pixel intention. <laughs> pixel intention. Yes. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you awesome. so much for, yes, for thank you. and taking the time. Really appreciate it. We're super grateful to work with you and uh, yeah. Thank you again. Really appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Pixel Perfect Podcast, where we go down the rabbit hole on the journey and motivations of creatives and entrepreneurs. Stay tuned for more stories to come. Until next time.